Welcome back to this latest Hermsons Healthcare Law podcast. I'm Graham Trigg and I head up the firm's client services department. I have with me today Steve Evans. Stephen's a partner in our Harrogate office and he's an expert in healthcare and medical law. Um, what we're going to do here is kick off a series of podcasts uh, all covering uh, consent. And I think, uh, Stephen, that's something that, that you've been putting together for a while. So, Tell us a little bit about um, why, why you've chosen consent as a topic and, and who these podcasts are going to be aimed at. Right, Graham. Well, uh, yes, it's uh, it's uh, who it's aimed at, these podcasts, uh, primarily because of the type of, of, of work that uh, Hempson's does um, as a law for, uh, firm, uh, primarily people involved in providing health and social care uh, in whatever um, context. The whole topic is 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 broader than that, as we will explore. Um, but that's the focus uh, that we're going to be uh, coming at it from. In terms of of why is it worthwhile covering this as a topic? Well, there's a there's a number of um, reasons. Firstly, um, the the whole issue um, is central to the lawful delivery of all aspects of health and social care. So it's well worth revisiting from time to time. Uh, It can go wrong um, and it can be harder than it first appears. It's one of those topics, it's one of those things that um, everybody, uh, whether they realise it or not, is using every day when delivering health and social care. And and it suffers from the fact that uh, people either don't think about it when they're faced with a slightly unusual situation mm-hmm. um, or they think that they understand um, how to approach the issue of, of, of consent um, and they don't because they're using it every single day and they, they haven't picked perhaps picked up on uh, nuance. But um, also because uh, the third reason for looking at it we're coming, hopefully, to the end of a long period of disruption uh, in health and social care when there's been a huge focus, of course, on a particular um, issue. Uh, and it's worth going back and relooking at the basics. Within the coronavirus pandemic itself, uh, issues involving uh, consent have been thrown up, uh, such as um, making decisions about who should receive what care. Uh, with a lot of controversy, so it's worth looking at um, those. And we've recently uh, had uh, the Cumberledge Review uh, published, where Baroness Cumberledge uh, chaired a committee uh, looking at uh, some issues uh, around failings uh, in healthcare, in particular on uh, three um, topics. Uh, There were aspects in relation to two uh, types of medication and one medical um, device that she was specifically asked to look at and within her review she came up with a number of themes and the ones particularly relevant to consent are uh, theme one no one is listening uh, as she headed it and theme three I was never told uh, in Mm -hmm. which she particularly looks at uh, the issue of consent in relation to um, uh, healthcare treatment, uh, and that feeds into uh, clinical negligence, which is always a topic important uh, to many of our clients. Cool. So, yeah. 
okay so um i I think I, I'm probably, I, th I think I'm beginning to see the answer to my next question that I've written down here, which is why a series? Why, why, why not just bite this off in one chunk? You're, you're planning a series of these podcasts. So um, I think I think I know the answer already, <laughs> uh, given what you've well, been telling me. But um, yes, yeah. Uh, consent has a huge number of facets to it. Yeah. Um, it's uh, some uh, issues are of general application. Some aspects of it are very, very specific. Um, but there's just too many uh, to yeah. cover in one go. So what we're hoping and planning to do is to have bite-sized podcasts. Uh, people can dip in, they can select the, the podcast that might be particularly relevant to the issue they want to uh, know about or have an issue with at, uh, at the time. And it also uh, gives people, hopefully, will listen to more than one. Uh, I would love them to come back and comment and to uh, raise uh, issues that they would like to have covered um, and and we can adapt and develop uh, the series as we uh, go on. Fantastic so we, we can make them a little bit interactive as we go which has got to be good. That would be good. Great so um, obviously constant you know it is a factor in every aspect of healthcare. But what is it that's so fundamental about consent? Why is it that it's something that we spend so much of our time as healthcare lawyers talking about? Um, because, uh, as you say, it's absolutely central to delivery. So I have I have three um, words um, that I would uh, throw out there. Uh, the first is autonomy. Uh, that's uh, the aspect of consent which is significant to the, the, the patient or the service uh, user, um, looking at things from their point of view. And then the other two are um, relate more to the position of the provider, whether that be the organisation or the individual uh, people working uh, within organisations to deliver health and social care. And those are risk and uh, protection. So first and foremost, um, the, the question of autonomy is, is really, really important to people. It's their care, their treatment, it should be about them. And that I think is the way that any of us would feel um, if, we, if we needed to receive um, care and treatment. It should be about us, it shouldn't be about the, the the, the doctors, the nurses, the the staff. Um, it, it it should be more about what we want. That's the autonomy point. Uh, but that in itself can be a, um, a, a you know a difficult a difficult issue. Turning to the other words that I used, risk sort of straddles the position between autonomy and protection. So risk is about who who is who is taking responsibility for what could go wrong? Um, so uh, the process of obtaining consent is about transferring knowledge and information from the people who know uh, about a subject, who know about a treatment or a procedure to somebody who doesn't know so much about it, that is the patient or the service user. And that process is transferring the risk of things going wrong. It's, it's taking the knowledge that the providers have, 
imparting it to the person who's going to be the subject of the procedure yeah. and letting it become their decision uh -huh. that they want to have it, that the benefit of having it outweighs the risks of having it. Yeah. Um, rather than the more paternalistic view of, I know about it, I'll decide for you whether or not you should have it. But that brings us to the third aspect, which is protection. Because if you don't remove that risk, that risk stays with the provider. Yeah. So in legal terms, um, if we don't get consent right, um, it, it leads to complaints, it can lead to criminal liability, it can lead to liability for damages, it can lead to disciplinary action, either professional or employer's disciplinary action against individuals. There's a lot of consequences of not getting it right and serious consequences and doing it properly provides you with protection uh, against um, those those things going against you. You can never provide protection against a complaint being made, for example, but doing it properly gives you the answer to that complaint. Cool. cool. Excellent. So I, I guess the question then that, that, that comes to, to mind from, for me is where, where the provider has transferred the risk to the patient and they've given them all the information and the patient has things to weigh up. Um, it's all very well where you know, the, the patient is of, of you know, good mental health, I don't know whether I'm using the right phrase phrase now, but if they're not able to make the decisions for themselves, um, how does that work? That, that's that's got to be a difficult situation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is, Graham. It, and, and that's where a lot of we will in due course be spending time on this, because that's where a lot of the problems that I see arise. It's a really, really important point. Um, we, we talk about consent um, because it's a it's an easy word to use but what in legal terms we're really looking for is um, whether or not that 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 we want to do to somebody or to provide for somebody is is lawful so it's 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 whether we can do something lawfully and the commonest and usually easiest way of making something lawful in in health and social care is to have the consent of the person for whom it's being done yeah. we have their we have their agreement to it yeah. um, but there are other ways of doing it um, and uh, of getting that lawful authority and that's where consent becomes intimately bound up with um, capacity because people need to mm -hmm. have the ability to give or to refuse their consent, uh, the ability to decide for themselves in order for consent to be valid. If, if they don't have that ability, then we have other ways in which we can explore the legality of providing that care and treatment. Um, and that takes us um, uh, in, into uh, the phrase that many people will be familiar with, with best interests, but mm -hmm. it can include um, other um, uh, ways of obtaining uh, lawful authority. And there are even some aspects of the law where um, care and treatment can be provided 
against the wishes of somebody who can make up their own mind. And the, 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 the obvious uh, example of that uh, is in relation to um, mental health. Yeah. Um, so and we'll, we, we will look at that in due course uh, as a topic within this series. But to come back to the main point, consent, you can't think about consent without thinking about people's capacity. Sure. Um, and the reason why that becomes a problem is that most people, most of the time, are able to make the decisions for themselves. Yeah. It's recognising when you've got an issue about that and what you do about it and how early you do something about it. And also, to some extent, an increasingly controversial area is how quickly uh, do we in, in health and social care decide that somebody can't make up their, their own mind when they start to disagree with the professionals? Yeah. And, and do we do that? Uh, do we jump in there too fast and say, well, they then lack, lack capacity and start saying we want to do it anyway? Um, so, so these are very thorny issues, uh, really, really important to the individuals concerned and to the people who care about the individuals concerned. Um, and very emotive issues and it can go very wrong very quickly. So yeah. you need a very good grasp of the whole picture and how the legal system works. Exactly. OK, so turning then to, to that legal system, um, you know, as a lawyer, as an expert in this field, um, where, where are you where are you going to for your for the, for the law on this stuff? Is it, is it is it, is it is it nice and codified in a couple of statutes? Is it uh, is it hundreds of years worth of case law? What, what's where's it all coming from? Um, I suppose the honest answer is a little bit of everything. Um, I knew but, you were say <laughs> don't we always? <laughs> uh, if it was too easy, you wouldn't need us. Um, <laughs> uh, but but in fairness, there uh, within um, uh, consent capacity. Um, there, there is one key statute. There is one key act of Parliament called the Mental Capacity Act, um, which, which was uh, enacted in 2005 and has been in force uh, basically since October 2008. And that comes with another document called the Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice. And one of the key things I perhaps want to say at this point uh, to, to those listening, I suspect most people listening will have heard of the Mental Capacity Act and they will have heard of the Code of Practice. Yeah. Um, my experience is that uh, many people in health and social care have heard of it, but not actually read either of them. Mm -hmm. And what I would say to you, if you're interested in this subject, um, the Mental Capacity Act, and we'll cover this again in, in, in future podcasts, was a revolution in legislation. It was specifically drafted in a way that was intended to be accessible. Um, I have to say it started off well and then we messed it up slightly when we introduced new ideas into it, but, um, uh, but it's intended to be accessible to people who are not lawyers. However, the I don't recommend people starting with that, I recommend that people read the Code of Practice. Yeah. And why is that? Two things. One, 
that itself is 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 meant to be uh, an accessible, easy to understand interpretation of the of the act itself. And secondly, uh, one of the sections of the act, um, for those who are interested, section forty two, um, specifically says that people who are delivering uh, health and social care, people who are caring for individuals who lack capacity um, or may lack capacity, must have regard to the code of practice. And that mm. must have regard to means that you are meant to follow it unless you can give a good reason for not following it. And in simple terms, I normally take the view that if you have to admit you've never read it, um, that it, 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 your reason for not following it becomes a little bit less um, uh, believable. Um, so I, I really encourage everybody to look at the code of practice. You can Google it. If you Google Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice, it will come up. It's a, it's, it's got a green cover. Uh, most organisations will have multiple copies often festering in the bottom of drawers. Um, it will be on, if you've got an intranet within your organisation, it will almost certainly be on there. It will be in the library um, of, of, of hospitals. Um, if uh, so go and find one, um, have a look at it. It is in, it is organised into discrete chapters which deal with specific topics. And when we start to look at the Mental Capacity Act in this series, uh, I am anticipating that we will have a podcast on different chapters so that we try and right. follow the format of the Mental Capacity Act. There will be other topics as well. Yeah. Um, but yes, to make it, so, so, those two key things, Mental Capacity Act, Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice, but uh, as I said, it's not quite that straightforward. Uh, there are cases that predate the Mental Capacity Act that are still relevant. There are cases which interpret the Mental Capacity Act and aspects of the Act um, which uh, can be relevant. Uh, I've already mentioned uh, capacity in the context of clinical negligence. That's a specific case um, decided by the Supreme Court uh, referred to as Montgomery, um, mm -hmm. which says what the test is for clinical negligence in relation to uh, giving proper consent. Um, uh, so we do need to take a number of, of sources to repeat Mental Capacity Act. The Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice are at the centre of that and absolutely crucial. Fantastic. OK. So I think we, we you know, we, we don't want this first introductory podcast to be terribly long. So I think what would be really useful just to finish off it is for you to sort of give us a bit of a clue as to what's coming up. What what, what are the aspects of consent that um, we're going to be talking about in the first few of this this series? All right. Well, I'm hoping we're going to get these done pretty quickly. Um, and uh, my thoughts at the moment are that the next podcast is going to look at that issue uh, flagged by Baroness Cumberledge that I've just talked about, and that's consent and clinical negligence. Right. Um, it's it's really important. A, it's important to to, to many of our clients, um, but uh, it's important because it's a little bit different. Yeah. It's changed the law. Um, uh, on the test for clinical negligence in this context, and it's a little bit different from what you need uh, in terms of consent to protect you from the other things I mentioned, like uh, uh, criminal liability. Um, 
and so on. So I want to focus on that first and we'll explain all of that more. Um, then I think the other topic that uh, creates difficulties, I want to give an overview of consent in relation to adults, young mm -hmm. people and children. Yeah. Uh, because uh, we'll start off with an overview and then we'll break that down in later podcasts. But then I'm anticipating that we will move on to looking at that really important statute and that really important document, the Code of Practice, the, so the Mental Capacity Act itself yeah. and its Code of Practice. And we'll have a series of podcasts which are likely to follow the format of the code of practice so you can pick out the ones that are relevant to you and relate it to the code. Great stuff. Brilliant. So I think in the spirit of interactivity that we talked about, what would be really great also is if people tweet us, tweet us at Hempson's Legal and let us know what else you'd like us to cover in, in, in this consent series of podcasts. Uh, if you if you're not on Twitter, email me, email me g.trig at hempsons.co.uk when we can we we will add your uh, requests into this series of podcasts on consent and uh, we'll make it all as interactive as we possibly can. But for now, I think that's covered everything that, that, that we, uh, we set out to. Stephen, thanks very much for your time today. We will be uh, returning to the fold soon next week by sound of it, if you want to crack on with this. So um, as long as my cat doesn't try to sabotage any more of the podcasting this afternoon, uh, I will say thanks very much, Stephen, and thank you to everybody for listening. We will be back very, very soon. Thank you, Greg.